We've co-built some of the most successful companies today in cyber. The World Economic Forum listed six technologies of the year. Three of them were ours in little old Maryland. So a very different, we only do four a year, and it's very, very old school. It's like venture was 35 years ago. So it's different, a way of doing it. It doesn't mean it's the way of doing it. It's just a very different approach. Today, knock on wood, we've built some of the most successful companies. And out of 22, we've had two failures. That's it. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Mike Jenke, co-founder of Datatribe. Mike, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Brad. Yeah, no problem. So to kick things off, can you tell our audience a bit more about who you are, your background, and really just how you made your way into venture? Yeah, I come from a very unconventional background in the to venture, what I do today. I originally came from the United States SEAL teams. I was at SEAL Team 6 for my last tour. I left and I started a defense firm right before 9-11. I grew that defense firm to over 8,000 employees at 500 million in revenue a year and sold it. I saw a problem that wasn't being solved in tech. So back in those days, nobody was going to fund a, a former SEAL Team 6 guy that didn't have a college degree. So I funded it myself. And the first company was Silent Circle, along with Phil Zimmerman, the creator of PGP, who's in the Internet Hall of Fame, and John Callis, Apple's chief cryptographer. And uh, from there, I founded uh, four or five more companies as a CEO, all in the cyber security, uh, secure comm space. And what I saw was, as a CEO, I've raised over $400 million from venture in my career. Seven years ago, we felt that in cyber, all the new innovation, I'm not talking iterative innovation, I'm talking brand new category type stuff, was coming out of the nation state cyber war, if you will, the U.S. against China, Russia, Israel, you know, and from the offensive side, I'm talking the NSA, the CIA, those, this is where tens and hundreds of billions of dollars was being dumped into both architecture as well as security, as well as offense. So we felt that that is the hotbed of where new innovation in cybersecurity and data science was coming. So we founded Data Tribe, which is a very unique venture. It's, we call it a foundry, where we actually invest up to $3 million in seed. And we move this real early stage company into our facility. And we have a team of former CEOs, chief revenue officers, CTOs, that literally help co-build by embedding in that team. There's a lot of hype about Data Tribe. Most of it's not warranted. Why do I say that? We've co-built some of the most successful companies today in cyber. The World Economic Forum listed six technologies of the year. Three of them were ours in little old Maryland. So a very different, we only do four a year, and it's very, very old school. It's like venture was 35 years ago. So it's different, a way of doing it. It doesn't mean it's the way of doing it. It's just a very different approach. And today, knock on wood, we've built some of the most successful companies. And out of 22, we've had two failures. That's it.
So it's a little different ratio than <laughs> if you're a large venture firm doing 60 investments a year and you're shooting for 10%. We're around the 96% success rate. Wow. And what do you attribute that success to? Is it because you bring them in-house and provide all those services? Or what do you think it is that leads to that insane success rate? I think that's part of it, Brett. I mean, but that's not scalable. So in other words, venture firms today that take a billion, three billion, four billion, they have to put that money to play. So they have to take bets on things that fit their model, have X amount of revenue, X founder in this space with that TAM. They can't, by sheer inertia of how much money they have, do what we do. And nor would we want to do that game. So I think a lot of the success comes from the fact that we call it offense to defense. Let me give you an example. Let's say you and a team of five are senior people at some classified research or agency, and you're tasked with, I don't know, let's say penetrating the networks of some enemy. And over time, you've developed something and you realize, oh my God, the whole world's susceptible to this. We bring you out. We have no hooks with government. We invest on a standard term sheet and we build a commercial version to protect against that. The other thing is the unsexy tech. I call it the car wash tech. This is architecture. So it's not flying cars and super secret stuff, but think of Splunk. Today, the amount of data being ingested by government agencies is on the scale of many times larger than the largest of Google or Amazon per day. And then behind the Googles and Amazons and Microsofts and Apples is the Fortune 2000. But every year, they're doubling the amount of data they ingest. So today's architecture, think messaging buses, think Hadoop, think Splunk, think serial servers, does not work at that scale. So these agencies spend billions to build a new technology that can handle that scale. We look at it and go, wow, the world's going to need that. Let's pull that team out, build a commercial version. And so it's because we can do things bespoke and white glove, move the team in, that is really part of the answer to your question on what can I attribute it to. And is it a traditional fund structure or is this all just your capital and your co-founder's capital? No, we have some of the world's best strategics. I could tell you Coke Industries, the world's largest private conglomerate, a Deloitte, an Allianz, and others. And then we have family offices and strategic investors from you know most of the Five I nations. On top of it, we have what we call our brain trust. Think of 70 to 80 people who are the most prominent technologists who have built something. Think founders of Shopify, the head of Google Cloud Security, CrowdStrike. Those founders will only let them invest a little, say 100,000, 200,000. But we use them differently. Don't sit on the board of a seed stage company. They are our eyes and ears as well. So we're set up very differently. We open a new vehicle every two and a half years and we build eight companies. We turn around, open another one. They're almost evergreen. But we will not You can't grow it beyond that. In other words, we've had people say, hey, take a hundred million and build 15 companies. 
Well, you can't do that. You can't scale what we do. You can't build 80 year. So we're of the size and scope that is appropriate for what we're building, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. And you mentioned there that you have four companies go through the program per year. How many apply roughly to even be part of it? Over 400. Wow. They don't apply. They pitch to us. We see over 400 a year. We choose four. And like I said, 75% of them actually come out of the classified space. But we build commercial technology companies. We're not interested in building gov tech companies. And so that's what kind of separates us. We like to have our companies stay at 85 to 90% commercial, 10 to 15% government. You'll hear a lot of talk today about dual use technology. And in our experience over the last seven years, that's a lost leader. If you build something for government, it's kind of a one-off. You'd have to build a separate product for Exxon, Ford, and Disney or a separate version. So what we like to do is you know, your first six, seven customers are all Fortune 500. And then you can tell government, yeah, yeah, here is the product. No, we're not. We're not spending a year building a one-off for you. And that's kind of how we approach it, Brett. Super interesting. And you see a lot of pitches then. So 400 per year, you've been doing this for a couple of years now. So you see a lot of pitches there. Yep. Would you say are the characteristics of a good pitch? And then what are the characteristics of a bad pitch? That's great. The first thing is we're not looking for what I'll call competitive iterative technology. So I'll give you an example. It could be endpoint. It could be threat intelligence. It could be IoT. Well, when you get a pitch, we already know there's 15 to 20 companies well-funded that you would compete with. So if your pitch is just by way of simile, we're 5% less filling, 10% less sugar and cheaper than the other competitors, we're not interested. That's iterative. It's not a new category or vast leap. The other thing I would say is, look, being a six-time founder myself, there's a lot you don't know. But when you put in your deck that we're pre-revenue now, but next year we'll make 17 million and then the year after that, 60, it shows you don't understand the path of what a company actually does. What are your metrics to go out for an A round? What about B round? How much revenue do you need, right? The other part I would say is valuation. Never talk valuation. Let the investor set the valuation. In other words, we see startups that are saying at seed stage, we're at 15 million valuation and we only want to give up 20%. Well, that shows they don't understand how the whole professional investment venture world actually works. So I probably spend a third of my time working with non-data tribe founders who we think have something good, but they need an emergency course and don't send this deck to anybody else. Here's what you need to do. We'll even forward it to investors we think would be interested. So just because it doesn't fit data tribe doesn't mean this can't be a great company, but you've got to have some help to make sure you understand what you're presenting, that it fits in the realm of how professional venture actually invests and evaluates 
a startup. The other thing I would say is most venture 95% does not do seed round. So don't send your deck to Andreessen or Sequoia or Excel. That day will come, but not at seed stage. So those are the quick five that I see every day that I try to spend the time to educate the founders. Because you think of it this way, when you send a deck to an investor, expect that nine other people have reviewed your deck. So you have to be within the confines of how it actually works to get investor money. And that's kind of what I do with founders today is at least a third or a quarter of my time is spent with good founders who don't fit our model, but they just don't have that stuff in order. And do you prefer what you do now as an investor compared to when you were a founder or do you ever miss the founder days? Oh, I love what I do now way more. Yeah, Uh, for a lot of reasons. We're a very different model where I can actually embed and help the CEOs along with our team and work with them, you know, every day going through the challenges. Next thing you know, they're pre-IPO six years later, right? I liken it to being almost, I'm not a grandparent, but in a sense, like a grandparent, right? You get to play with the baby all day long and you hand it back at five. Hey, here you go. You're in charge of payroll and you know all of that. But I get to see so many things that scratch the intellectual itch. Where when I was a CEO and founder, it either went to Valhalla and everybody made money or it crashed and burned and there went four to six years of your life. So I like this a lot better. That makes sense. And I can see that. When you sold your company, did you know that you were going to do something like this? Were you thinking about just retiring, thinking about starting a new tech startup? Or what were your thoughts when you sold that previous company? Well, every time I had an exit as a founder, I've had some great exits and I've had some smoking craters of other people's capital. (laughs) I learned something. And over six CEO slots, I knew I couldn't put myself or my family or others through what I would call it's all or nothing. And I got frustrated with Standard Venture. So to give you an example, it was a big deal, I think, back in 2008 when Andreessen actually opened a $600 million fund. That was unheard of, right? I mean, that much money. And what happened is then the Sequoias and everybody else go to $1 billion, $3 billion, $11 billion, $5 billion funds. So venture firms, the large ones, had to add what I'll call mid-level management that evaluates things basically on a spreadsheet. They get decks, you know, dozens every day. And does it have the correct TAM? Is it a multi-time founder? What's their revenue? So forth and so on. And if you don't fit that criteria, you don't even speak to a partner, right? They just send you an email. We're not interested. So venture itself over the last 10 to 12 years has progressed into something more of an institutional financial. So it was frustrating for me. And I saw a lot of this innovation coming out of what we talked about earlier, you know, kind of the classified cyber war going on under the scenes. And I said, there's my co-founder, Bob Ackerman, has been doing venture in Silicon Valley 20-something years. He opened the very first cybersecurity-only fund on Sand Hill Road 20 years ago. 
people thought he was crazy. It wasn't even called cyber back then. It was called information technology security. So Bob and I had the shared vision that it would take a different methodology to build some of the most dominant cyber and data science companies. And so we built Data Tribe this way. I love that. So interesting. Now, I want to change gears here a little bit and, and go to you know, really the theme of the podcast, which is this idea of category creation, which is you know, the yep. big sexy term right now. Every founder I've interviewed, about 100 of them, yeah, I think that they're creating a category. I'm not sure how many of them actually are. So right <laughs> off with that, a general question is, what are your views on category creation? Several. One is we work closely with Gardner and people like that. To date, in seven years, we've been successful creating four new categories. Wow. Because of that, we don't go into it saying, let's create a new category. That in of itself isn't the panacea. If your technology is so vastly different, it'll happen. It will happen. It may take time, but people will eventually go, this is not attack surface management. This is something completely different. So it seems to me that over the last four years, somebody wrote a blog and all of a sudden it's become some marketing thing. Let's create a new category. I would not do that unless your technology is so net new or it bounces across three separate categories. Well, that takes homework. Do you even know the categories? Do you know how they quantify them? So I think you have to filter out what I'll call marketing speak and the perception that if I am able to create a new category, I'm obviously going to have a successful company. That is not what category creation is about. You have to actually truly have a technology and have customers tell you and then begin like we do. Gardner looks at our companies and says, you know, over a course, of, it takes three years. You know, we can't fit this into a category. We think you're right. Here's a couple of categories we're thinking of creating around it. Typically, you become a cool vendor before that happens. So there's a process. And it only makes sense if it's true that you are absolutely something net new. 99% or 98%, that's not the case. And that doesn't matter. Why? A customer doesn't sit there and go, what category are you in? <laughs> that's, that's not how they're evaluating you. Are you better than anything they use today? And they can rip out two to three products. Or are you so net new that they couldn't live without it? There isn't anything like it. That's when you know you're headed towards something that's completely different than category. Today, I see it. People use it as marketing. Nobody cares. <laughs> they don't. That's what it seemed like. Um, I went to Black Hat for the first time last oh, God. June and talk about just marketing buzzwords. It seemed like everybody was trying to have a different category name that yeah, they just made up and kind of pulled out of their ass is what it seemed like. You nailed it. That's exactly what it is. It's like a fad, right? Four years ago, we were doing this and Gardner was like, well, yeah, we agree with and it was never used as marketing. I can tell you the four companies we have today, not a single one of them says we created a new category. They're the category leader and there are others that follow, right? But that doesn't mean a, a CISO or a CIO is going to buy your product because 
you created the category. It has to save them money, make them way more secure or efficient, money saving, or it saves them time, right? Today, companies are getting 5,000 alerts a week with all the the securities, and they can maybe get to 100. So those are the things that you're evaluated on, not marketing speak. And I know you mentioned attack surface management then or or, uh, ASM for one of the categories. What were the other three categories? So the other categories are a global intellectual property intelligence. And then you have OT cybersecurity, operational technology. Think, so there's IT and now there's OT, right? Think factories, oil, gas, power, trains, planes. There are not IT. They run, there are 76 different minor operating systems in OT that aren't found in IT. And then you have homomorphic encryption, which is a PHE or full FHE, full homomorphic. And that was created by Envale six years ago. And those are examples of category creation, not because it was marketing, but because it didn't fit in any other place you could even think of. So I'd finish it by saying, don't follow the marketing speak. Let it gestate and you'll know if in fact it's even worth creating a new category. That's super helpful. And do you think it's possible to create a category without Gartner and without you know, Forrester also naming it? Is that possible? Or do you need that buy-in from the analyst firms? To make it official, you need the buy-in from the analyst firms. And typically, they come up with the name. You can give them some ideas, but it takes years of working with them before they conclude yeah, we're going to have to create this new category. And they won't do it if there's only one. So in other words, in our experience, having created new categories, yes, one of our portfolio companies started. Three years later, there were two others new that came in to compete. And that's when Gardner or Forrester said, yep, it's a category. Others are following it. Others are coming in. Corporate customers want this stuff. So it's about volume and traction. And that's how they're created. But I see a lot of startups saying we've named our own category. I'm like, don't, don't do that. <laughs> it's not, it's not going to do you any good, right? You have to engage once you have the traction. Then it'll happen if it will. And stepping a little bit outside of category creation now, let's just talk about the current landscape. So obviously a a lot's happening in the world and in tech right now. So what are you advising your portfolio companies to do to navigate this current situation that we're in? Well, it's very interesting. In a lot of ways, cyber is insulated. It's a, a term on Wall Street called uncorrelated from the markets. So there are things that regardless of the economy, companies as well as individuals must have, not nice to have, right? Cybersecurity is the number one priority on boards right now and has been for some time. Healthcare, right? More money keeps flooding into healthcare. In consumer, nowadays, Amazon is a must have, not a nice to have. So uncorrelated segments of the market like cyber continue to go up. Our companies continue to meet 100% wire-over-wide growth 
Now, where you see the problems in cyber, some areas are overinvested, i.e. you might have 40 competing companies. There will be many of those that don't make it and there'll be some consolidation. But that particular category will continue to grow. It just won't be overinvested, flooded with venture money. So what we do see is that the sales cycle is extended, where it may have been four months is now six months. You're still closing the deal. It just takes a lot longer, more justification of the spend. And this is my third one I've been through either as a founder or inventor, and they all kind of follow the same path. Some are more extreme than others, but it's actually a good thing for cyber and data science because this flood of money over the last five to six years has created an environment where in some categories you have 30 competing companies, right? How it could a company, you know, win in that environment? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. All right. Now, last question here for you. What do you anticipate is going to happen in venture from early stage over the next, say, 12 months? That's a great question. It will continue in early stage to have good funding, but it'll be more targeted. So now what happens in a downturn, the large players that reach down to play at A round or start the seed fund no longer do that. So the available body of investors for, let's say, seed and A is greatly reduced. So I highly recommend that founders bootstrap and try to get their first customer bootstrapped. If you can't do that, find some good angels that believe in it, but you've got to really be cash efficient and you've got to get some early traction. Get two to three customers because without that, See larger seed stage investors like a data tribe that would write you a two and a half to three million dollar check. We see so many, you get to pick and choose the best of those breeds. So you're still seeing a tremendous amount of seed in A and cyber. It's just much more focus and discipline. So your requirements to get invested are a little higher than just a napkin. <laughs> Which is probably good overall, right? Yeah, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, agreed. I, I do. Nice. Well, Michael, unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today's interview. I wish we could go on. I have so many more questions. So you'll have to come back on sometime in the future here. But before we wrap, if people want to follow along as you continue to build up Data Tribe or maybe want to get in touch and you see if you'd be interested in investing, where's the best place for them to go? You know, they can go to our website at Data Tribe. There's a whole bunch of stuff on there. There are founders who talk about it. But, you know, if they're looking for information, the first thing I would say is talk to somebody like me that's involved in it to give you some advanced information before you put a deck out there in the world so that it fits today's time and space. But I'm honored to be on the show with you. So I think it's a great podcast, Brett. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And let's keep in touch. You got it.